1: Hey, everybody, welcome to the Performance Anxiety Podcast. I'm your host, Mark. We are a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I want to take a second and thank our sponsor, AKG, for sending us their Podcaster Essentials kit, which contains the incredible Lyra mic and a fantastic set of headphones. If you have ever thought about doing your own podcast, the podcast for Essentials Kit is the perfect way to get started. Steve Dawson grew up listening to a transistor radio instead of satellites and streaming platforms. And that informs the music that he writes today. After playing in Dolly Varden for years and releasing albums as a solo artist, Steve stepped away from music. But after taking a class with Richard Thompson and Patty Griffin, he felt the time was right to come back. Some of the work he created in that class even made its way onto Steve's new solo album, At the Bottom of a Canyon in the Branches of a Tree. But there's an entire lifetime of stories that Steve shares with us, like the inspirations for several of his albums, how he got the name for his band Funeral Bonsai Wedding, and how he came to write a book about songwriting. Follow Steve at StevDosso on Instagram, S-T-E-V-D-A-W-S-O. Pick up at the bottom of a canyon in the branches of a tree, on Bandcamp, or wherever you get new music. Follow us at Performance ANX on social media. Rate and review the show. It really helps us get in front of new people. Merch can be purchased at performanceanx.threadless.com and coffee can be donated at ko-fi.com slash performanceanxiety. So please enjoy this episode with Steve Dawson on Performance Anxiety, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. All right. Hey, this is Steve Dawson uh, from
0: Funeral Bonsai Wedding, Dolly Varden, and uh, I have a solo record called At the Bottom of a Canyon in the Branches of a Tree coming out July 16th, and you're listening to the
1: Performance Anxiety Podcast. The first first way I start off is usually by um, turning off my notifications, which I completely forgot to do, but that shouldn't be a problem, so as long as I can ignore it, you won't even notice it coming through, but I want to find out a little bit about growing up, how you got into music in the first place. Um, Was, was there a lot of music in the family growing up or uh, was that something that you came by, uh, you know, by accident? How, how, how did you start your passion for music?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, My dad is a music lover, but he, no one in my family plays any music. I'm the only one. I had a, a distant, like, a uh, great uncle that was a composer, but I never met him. He died young, and I, so that's, but that's, oh, wow. my grandma would sometimes say to me, oh, you remind me of, of Hugh, but other than that, nobody in our family played music. Oh, wow. But I will say I loved, I just loved the radio, and growing up, like, in the, the 70s, the just AM radio was just killer. Like, yeah. every song was... Well, I shouldn't say every song. There were a lot of crappy songs, but the, <laughs> there were a lot of great songs. And it was it was non segregated, so like you'd have Stevie Wonder and Elton John and George Harrison, and you know, all all back to back. And then all these all the one hit wonders and all that kind of stuff. I just loved the radio. And I remember I had this little blue. Uh, transistor radio that I would just carry I'd you know, ride around on my bike through, the, you know, with the radio going or go walk through the woods and just loved it, so.
1: You were born in California,
0: was that right? Yeah, so this would have been in San Diego in California.
1: Oh, nice, nice. Yeah. This a beautiful area. It is. So, so, I agree with you completely about the AM radio at the time, because I grew up uh, I was born in 73, so I grew up with, with the uh, radio from the 70s and the 80s and all, and I think a lot of things a lot of this connectivity that we have has really like you said segregated things because now you have things like satellite radio where you have a channel for every sub genre of every genre that exists so you don't if if you like I don't know let's just say um, Metallica you don't have to ever change the channel because you've it's got true. a channel that's just going to play you that stuff. So right. I think it, unfortunately it, it, it limits people's exposure to music unless they're willing to go out and, and look themselves. Totally.
0: Yeah. So, no, there's a lot of things I never would have heard as a kid. They played parliament on the, the AM station in San Diego. I remember hearing those on just, it was just mixed in there with the, all the other, you know, all the other stuff.
1: Yeah. And the DJs had a lot of yeah. more freedom. Yeah, yeah. Than than the pre-programmed stuff you get now, because I believe there's only a couple of companies that actually own most of the radio stations. So I know it's such. Oh, it's it's such a shame. And now, not only for DJs, because I have a a friend of mine who does a, a podcast who's a DJ, and you know he's he's one of the lucky ones that he can actually play music you know he's got a list that he's got to play of, of stuff he has to play but yeah still i mean it's the fact that he's a live person in there is is one thing and that you know he can throw in a track or two every once in a while is is, is good but i don't know i it's, i miss the the excitement of of you didn't know what was coming next yeah agreed so when did you really well i guess what what instrument did you start off with? Were there school uh, lessons so we, or anything like that? Or
0: yeah, when I was in uh, when I was in seventh grade, we moved up to Idaho, um, and well, that's I, a change. Well, it was a big change, and I started taking guitar because it was offered there. And um, I had a great teacher there, uh, Miss Terry, who <laughs> taught me guitar and taught me to love songs. She was a uh, an old hippie lady that. <laughs> that was just super into john denver and um, oh boy she was an, an anomaly up there you know it was very conservative and so it was like great to find her and sort of like have this passion about music and art and uh just like she had this rule that like once a song started you couldn't stop you could not interrupt it and i still try to stick with that in my classes oh wow because i teach guitar and it's like if someone is starting she would like if the principal came to the door in the middle of us playing a song, she would be like, you would never interrupt a song as it's playing. So it's Oh, great. I love
1: that. Yeah. I, I, she was amazing. Oh, that is awesome. And so you ended up going to Berkeley, but what, what point did you really decide to take music that seriously that you would study it in college?
0: That's a good question. And I don't know exactly. Although I, I very quickly, started spending all of my free time just practicing and playing guitar and i had relatives would send me songbooks cuz it was pre-internet so to learn to learn stuff it could be off of records but i wasn't skilled enough at that point to learn anything off of a record but people would send me like the complete beatles songbook or the neil young harvest songbook and i would just sort of like eat those up and learn all those songs and then people would send me more books and then i at some point i just started making up my own songs oh cool Within a few years, and then I started taking more fancy lessons with this guy that was a jazz guitar player that lived in town Ooh. and I think maybe once that started happening I had a I had a little band with some local local kids and we played um we played some functions and and dances and stuff like that and I mean we were a terrible band, but it was <laughs> you know it was really fun it was really fun. And the stuff was all at, we had the space in Mark. like we, we had a room off the side of our garage. So I, like everyone's gear was at our house. Oh, cool. So I, you know, I played, I would play Brad's drums. I would play the, you know, all the guitars and I just loved it. I just loved it so much. It was like, yeah, the thing that made me happy. So I, I, at some point it was just like, uh, well, I guess this is what I'm doing. It, it, it never occurred to me at, at some point to do anything else. Which maybe wasn't the smartest choice, but it's just the way it, the way it went.
1: Well, sometimes it's just what you're meant to do. Yeah. So, what did you go to uh, Berkeley to study? Was it a specific style of music, or were you just going there to to figure out the, what you wanted to do? Uh, the reason to go to Berkeley
0: was at that point. So, this would have been like 1983 there were two universities or two colleges that offered guitar as a major that wasn't classical guitar. So there was a lot of conservatories that where you could study classical guitar, but I'd never, I'd never played classical guitar. I didn't read music. Um,
1: really. I did cut a tiny bit, but not really. Wow. So going, um, going to Berkeley without being able to read music. That's, that's challenging. Well,
0: I don't think it was that unusual at the time Okay, because you have to audition. And I went, they had a, they had a summer program. So I went the, between my junior and senior year of high school, I went to this sort of like five week or probably not even that long, maybe a three week summer program at Berkeley. And because of that, you know, I, I bypassed some of the auditioning and I got in. Okay. Um, And as a school of, I mean, it, at the time, I guess it was considered a jazz school, but now it's just a school of popular music or a school of professional music. Um, okay. They didn't have a songwriting major at the time, though. Oh. So I, I
1: majored in jazz composition. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty, Okay, so that makes a lot of sense looking at your discography now. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. You go to Berkeley, and then after it's the move to Chicago, was that right after Berkeley or was there any, and what made you pick Chicago?
0: I would have stayed in Boston. I liked Boston a lot. And, uh, I was trying to figure it out, but as I crunched the numbers of what it was going to cost me to live there and it's Boston is even with Cambridge and the outlying areas, it's not that big. And the, the musician to civilian ratio there is pretty skewed <laughs> there's there's cause there's so many music colleges there. Oh. there's so many professors that are like teachers that are doing gigs. I knew I, I mean, I, I don't think I figured that I would be making a living as a musician at that point, but I did realize I was going to have to be working all the time just to pay rent. And that the, Chances of playing shows was not going to be that. At that point, I was just kind of a solo singer songwriter, folk singer. Okay. And there weren't that many opportunities. So I had a friend that I had met in Boston, who whose dad lived in Chicago, and we were talking on the phone. And I was trying to figure out what I was going to do, and he said, "I'm turning down gigs out here. There's so many show, There's so many gigs to be done had here, and they're paying actual money, and the cost of living is really low." And he was right. I mean, Chicago is huge, and Chicago is a music-loving city. Yeah. People actually will come out to hear original music here. Um, there's all kinds of styles. And uh, so you could be a folk singer. You could be playing blues or covers or rock and roll, you know, any of those things. And um, so, yeah, I moved out here, and I loved it, and I've, I've been here ever since. So basically, whatever you're into, there's an audience
1: for it in Chicago kind of yeah i mean stump. you have to work for it yeah you have to work for it but um but yes yeah so that, is that when you started the band stump the host yeah okay so stump how did the Host was pretty early
0: on it started with uh, one of the first people i met was a fiddle player named tom murray and we that was at some jam sessions and uh he and i were playing together and then i met diane who's who i now you know i'm married to and yeah. So the three of us started Stump the Host and we were playing as a, almost like a bluegrass-ish, like acoustic guitar, fiddle, and two-part harmony. Oh, cool. Um, We were playing at a few bars regularly. We had like monthly gigs at a few bars and started building a a fan base. Um, And I started writing songs for that. Diane and I wrote some songs together for that. And then I guess our ambitions just were growing and we got a bass player and the bass player knew a great drummer and the drummer and the bass player both knew a great electric guitar player. And so it, it turned into a a band that played a lot of different things. And then the fiddle, the fiddle player exited and we became more of a, I don't know. It was before alternative country was called like that name was invented, but we were kind of twangy, uh, super fun. The guitar player was, maybe the best guitar player I've ever played music with. He was incre- incredible. This guy named Brian Dunn, who has since given up playing music, which is shocking. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's so weird. So Man. weird.
1: It's, it's amazing sometimes. And like I said, I had a couple of sports podcasts before doing this. I've seen that in athletes too, guys who are just incredibly gifted, but they don't have the passion. Yeah. They, they don't want, that's not what they want to do. Yeah. It was crazy. Crazy.
0: But anyway, yeah, we were gonna do a reunion show a few years ago. And I got in touch with the bass player, the drummer, and then I got in touch with the guitar player, and he said, Well, let me see if I even know how to play anymore. Wow. He said, Let me, let me, uh, you know, talk to me in a week. And I called him back and he's like,
1: I can't do it. I can't do it. Wow. I know. Oh man, that's heartbreaking.
0: It is, it is, because yeah, he's he was very gifted, but he's now like a yoga guy. He's like a super intense yoga guy. So maybe that's, I mean,
1: I don't know. Hey, (laughs) he found his real passion. Yeah. Exactly. How did Stump the Host become Dolly Varden? Was there anything in between or was it uh, a morphing of one into the other or was it like a, a break and then Dolly Varden?
0: Well, a lot happened very quickly with stump the host, like all that transition from being a trio, like a bluegrass trio to being more of a rock band happened all in about a year. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. It was fast. And, and then, and Chicago, uh, like there were fewer bands then. And we became a buzz band and we started getting labels interested and we had got a, we got a publishing contract with Polygram and, um, we were getting sniffed out by a bunch of major labels and all of that, that pressure. And maybe this is one of the reasons that Brian, the guitar player stopped because all that pressure, it just messed with our minds. I think we were playing, all this happened within a few years. So we were playing, we were trying to tour, but touring was difficult. We had a new baby. Ah, uh, Was one of the reasons, um, but that wasn't i mean we were figuring that out it was more the personality things um and the pressure i mean i felt the pressure of the record label stuff really heavy like i gotta live up to their expectation and we can't mess this up this gig's really important all that kind of stuff really i mean that goes with your uh, the name of your podcast yeah I, I, I had a lot of performance anxiety around around all that pressure. Um, and so it stopped being fun. And uh, we just, I, I don't remember exactly, but I think we all just kind of agreed this isn't fun anymore. Yeah. And so we, we decided to end it. We had one final show that was like a big celebratory goodbye show. But then Diane and I still wanted to keep singing together. Okay. And so uh, we decided to Keep, like to make a band, but that maybe a band that was less country and more flexible in in its style. Oh, okay. Because stump the host, well, stump the host was pretty eclectic, but it it did it did a couple of things really really well. And one of these kind of big twangy rave ups would get people super excited, but there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot of nuance. <laughs> 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 um, so we were very we very um, selectively started like talking to other musicians and sort of wanted to create a band based on based on an idea of it being really open and being able to do all kinds of things. Okay. That was the plan. And uh, so between like, Stump, the end of Stump the Host was 93 and the beginning of Dolly Vardens, our first record came out in, Uh, the spring of ninety five. So there was a there was a year of transition where we tried we tried on some different outfits. We tried on I mean metaphorical outfits. We tried being a a grungy like grunge was the thing at the time. We tried being a really heavy rock band and that
1: that did not feel right. Wow. Yeah. Um, I can't even imagine you you, you playing grungy stuff. Or, yeah, it was not stuff. a good fit. It was not a good fit for either of
0: us. Because Diane Diane has a beautiful voice. Yeah. In that kind of plaintive, oh, yeah, kind of country, folk way. I mean, and I do too in a way. When neither of us are a rock singer, like full-on rock singers. You know? Right, yeah. But we were trying. <laughs> um, so we, I think it took us a few missteps and then we kind of found our footing because that that first Dolly Varden record is pretty great. I'm pretty happy with it and we made it ourselves.
1: So how did you guys come up with the name Dolly Varden? Because <laughs> I wouldn't have picked a variety of trout myself. Yeah, that, that was really interesting.
0: Well, okay. So when we named the band, it was Diane and I and our current drummer, Matt Toby, and a woman named Lisa Wortman as on bass. Okay. And um, we were sitting around, you know, so we grabbed a bunch of books and we were just like bouncing that names around. And I... I'm a fan of a poet, this guy named Richard Hugo, who's from, uh, from Montana. Okay. And there's a, there is a species of trout, Dolly Vartans, that, that are in rivers and lakes in the Northwest United States and up into Alaska. Like people will chart planes to go up into Alaska for hunt, for uh, fishing for Dolly Varden. Oh, wow. Okay. So he had a poem about Dolly Varden skeletons washed up on the beach. And I just... You know, I we were brainstorming, so I was going through I was like, "Oh, how about Dolly Varden?" And Diane said, "Yeah." And I was like, <laughs> her dad was all was a fisherman. And Dolly Varden was like this special kind of sought-after thing that she knew of as a trout. Wow. And of course, like Matt and Lisa were like, "No, no, we can't be Dolly Varden. Everyone will think you're making fun of Dolly Parton, right." <laughs> And we were Diane and I were like, nobody's gonna think that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> mm. uh, so there's uh, definitely a really cool Americana but garagey sounding sound to the to the band. With the band, were you guys writing collaboratively, or were you writing? Were you, were you writing the majority of the song? Are you and Diane, or was it uh, everybody bringing in their own songs and? I guess just how did that work?
0: <laughs> yeah. So uh, initially it was Diane and I both bringing in songs, um, me maybe 60% and her 40%. And it stayed that way for the first few records. And then she she stopped writing. She focused, she, she's a super creative person, but her main passion is making visual art. And she uh, she kind of shifted into music like putting all her creative energy into music through that period but then after a little while realized i mean she loves singing but that her real passion is in making visual art so then after i guess after about 2000 i've been doing the majority of the songwriting for dolly varden um that first record i think we wrote some songs actually together the two of us writing together and in Santa the we had written songs together But um, I would bring a song in, the process would be, I'd bring a song in, or Diane would bring a song in and just play it down for the band, and then everyone would invent their parts. Okay. We would sort of kick them around and try on different feels or different, you know, different approaches and and just, yeah, so it was organic arranging that way. But the the
1: raw materials
0: of the song were either mine or Diane's.
1: Oh, okay. That makes a lot of sense as to why the, the sound is very consistent and it's it's really wonderful that that it's it, it is so consistent because it's it's very inventive and I, I like the fact that Uh-oh. you hear the um, the, or the fact that you mentioned that that everybody was able to bring their own voice to the songs that you yeah. had written you don't always hear that yeah. It's, it seems
0: to me that's the way, like, if you're going to be a band, that's the way it should be. Yeah. Because Otherwise you're just a hired hand. I've been, I've been in bands where I'm just hired to play bass or play guitar, which is, it's perfectly fun, but you know, it's, it doesn't have that feeling of being a
1: band, like yeah. a little family. It's a job. At that yeah. Yeah. Uh, is it hard to be in a band with your wife? Cause I know my wife just, so we need to do more things together. Let's. We should do some projects together. And if you're in a band with your wife, man, you're doing everything together. You're writing, yeah. performing, touring. Is that is it difficult, or is it? I mean, you guys are obviously do it very well. We do it
0: very well. The I mean, the thing is about when you're in a band is that you're basically married to all of the people in the group because you're spending all of your time with that little subset of people. So it's it wasn't the tensions were not with Diane and I generally they were with, you know, they were other other. So you have, you know, if you have five people, you have all those relationships. Right. And the tensions, I mean, I was not the best at touring just cause I have some of the same stuff I was talking about before. Whereas I felt a lot of pressure and I felt to be, we never had money to hire a, like a road manager. So I was basically doing road managing and, you know, sort of musical directing wow. and all that kind of stuff. So it was, it was a lot. I mean, I'm not complaining. It was really fun, but the tensions weren't between Diane and I. And actually some of the more relaxing tours that we've ever done have been just the two of us in, in the UK. We did a, we did a bunch of touring as a duet in oh, the UK, wow. but also over there we often have a driver yeah. and <laughs> and that kind of stuff. So, The logistic stuff is, is what gets, but in general, I I mean, I'm, I might be painting a picture. That's not really true because in general, all of us in Dolly Varden get along very well with each other and, and really love each other. So it's been pretty, pretty smooth this whole time with all those guys. And that's wonderful.
1: That's wonderful. It's that again, a little, that can be a little unusual in a band that's been around as long as Dolly Varden has been. Yeah. Yeah, I know. So when did you start thinking about doing solo albums? Well, so um,
0: after 9 after 11, basically, we, we made our record, or we had a record finished in August of 2001. It came out in not like in October 2001, and we did touring off of that but it was super intense and it wasn't intense. It was intense because of us, but we like, we toured the, we toured the UK in October of 2001 and it was just, it was just super eerie and weird. And everyone was like, we didn't, we're, you know, we're not going out. We're not going. And I think we came home from that. We did, we did more touring in the States, but after that we were just exhausted. And, uh, both the bass player and the drummer, had brand new babies on the way so 2003 i had a bunch of new songs and the band was taking a little break so i made i made the first of my solo records at home during that time that's the one called sweet as the anchor yes some of we had started to work on some of those songs with uh dolly varden but i think we yeah we were just exhausted at, at that point we'd been a, a band and going at it pretty hard straight through since 95 so you know that's a long time it's a lot of work and a lot of effort and we had a fair amount of success and we were really happy with that but i those guys wanted to take a break and i didn't blame them but i i wanted to keep keep going so
1: yeah i mean you yeah right you've written a lot. So at that point, you know, you had a single with Stump the Host in 93. So you had, and then you had uh, releases in what? 95, 98, uh, 2000, 2002, 3, 5, 7, 10. Right. It, it, That's prolific. That's amazing. I can, I can understand that it would be hard to keep up with you at that point. <laughs> yeah. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. so it was intended as kind of a, a hiatus then you 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 would be no. working on these and and it, like Dolly Vard, Varden didn't break up it was just on a yes. hiatus okay yeah
0: yeah and then um i really enjoyed the process of making that record just working on on it myself and getting really obsessive about the parts and playing all the instruments i just i'd find that really satisfying I'm sort of an introvert and I like that, just like working all by myself and not having to talk to anybody. <laughs> I understand that. <laughs> <laughs> so I really enjoyed the process. So I, and it makes me do things that I wouldn't do with the band. You know, it brings out different colors and different different emotions. So Sweet as the Anchor was really fun. And it also, I, on touring that record, I brought in some people I've, I had grown to know, uh, most significantly would be, well, two people. One was, uh, Jason Adeshevitz, who's a vibraphonist who I ended up making. He's, he's the other sort of key player in Funeral Bonsai Wedding. So okay. I touring off of sweet as the anchor is how i got to know jason adeshevitz better and the other was frank rosalie who's the drum this incredible drummer who sadly has moved away from chicago but um he's the other person i started working with after sweet as the anchor and um just loved playing with frank he's an incredible drummer
1: oh okay so you answered one of my questions is how did funeral bonsai wedding come together so you know we talked about Having the the vibes and all, and was that? It's got a very different feel from the other stuff. It's definitely got a uh, more jazzy. It's got this really interesting mix of jazz, Americana, country, folk stuff. It's yeah. I really, really. Oh, thanks. I'm kind of pissed off at myself that I didn't know about it earlier because it's so cool.
0: I sat in the front room for hours and hours. (laughs) Where Tiffany, the one-handed cheerleader, her long red hair tangled with mine, the moon shone through her living room blind Some people, it seems like people either really like it or they just don't want to hear it. Oh, it was gosh. That- Cause I've had people go like the bells. I can't take the bells. I'm like, yeah, well, you're you're not you're the wrong audience for this. Yeah, stuff.
1: that's I love that stuff. That the the vibes
0: yeah. on that are just amazing. Yeah, I think so too. And if you ever get a chance to see him play, it is he's he looks like uh, the you know, like animal from the Muppets, and he's just like <laughs> super like he's in 110%. It's it's really amazing to watch him play. Oh, that
1: is great. Yeah. yeah. And then you end up you, you took a break after Well, actually, before we do that, you actually wrote you wrote a book. Yes. What really drove you to write a book about songwriting?
0: Well, around the same time that uh, Sweet as the Anchor happened, I started teaching classes at the Old Town School of Folk Music. So, it was um I had been working at a record store called the jazz record mart for a long time. And I just couldn't do that anymore. So, uh, I was looking for something else to do. And, uh, people who had been telling me you should be teaching at the old town school, you know, but, um, I didn't know if that was the right thing, but anyway, I went ahead and, uh, talked to the guy that, that, uh, hires teachers there. And he, he was like, yeah, let's do it. So I, you know, I got one class and I got a handful of classes. Eventually I was teaching songwriting classes. So I was, I started out just teaching guitar. Okay. So teaching, you know, basic learning how to play guitar, learning D, A, G, and, and, uh, you know, singing honestly, see teaching the same songs that Linda Terry taught me when I was in seventh grade, you oh, know, it's awesome. like leaving on a jet plane and all that, um, which is, you know, that was kind of cool to go full circle with that. Um, and nobody gets to interrupt you, right? No interruptions is absolutely. Um, so once I started teaching the songwriting classes though, it opened up this whole world of just everyday people being creative which I which was kind of revelatory to me to see how, like, I was kind of biased or I was under the impression that, you know, only certain people wrote songs. But the truth is, almost anybody can write a song if they want to. And uh, the Old Town School has really opened me up to that about just like, people being creative is a beautiful thing and an important thing. Um, so at some point after I'd been doing it for enough years, I, so the way the classes work is I give a weekly songwriting assignment based on a word prompt or a chord progression or a okay. form, some little something about songwriting is like, this is the the thing that's like, okay, so take this and make something with it and bring it back next week and play it.
1: Okay.
0: So after, I, after years of doing that every week, I had a, bunch of assignments and some of them were that were very successful and yielded a lot of good songs. And so people, people started saying to me, well, you should, you should put these in a book. And I was like, I don't understand how that would even work. <laughs> Cause I, that was so outside of any thought that I had of ever anything I ever wanted to do. Okay. But a very good friend of mine, Mark Caro, who what had been a music writer at the Chicago Tribune for a long time. And I knew him through that because he'd interviewed Stump the Host and he'd written stuff on Dolly Vard. And he wrote and he wrote and had a book published. And, uh, I, it just occurred to me that like, well, let me run this by Mark and see what he thinks. Right. And so he said, yeah, that could totally work. And here's how we should do it. And so he <laughs> came up with the idea of a conversation and with the assignments in the back. So the first half is just a back and forth conversation about creativity and writing. And then the second half is, is the
1: assignments. Interesting. Yeah. That's, see, that kind of fascinates me. I'm now I'm going to have to hunt this book out because that's, I've always wondered about writing songs and now the way you explain that now I'm really interested to see if I can do it. I think you can. I'm going to have to look it up. I'm going to have to try that out. (laughs) <laughs> so after that book, so in in twenty seventeen you actually kind of stepped away from everything for a, a little while. What was going on? And you, you stopped yeah. touring and you stopped writing?
0: Yeah. Well, I I come from a problematic family. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and my my mom had a lot of substance abuse issues and uh was suicidal and she wow. she she survived, but then finally died in 2003. And I never really dealt with it. And my dad had walked out on us when I was a kid and then took us back. That's why we moved to Idaho because he, he took us, he took us back because he had to, because my mom was no longer able to take care of us. Oh, wow. So it was just always not good. Yeah. And music was a, music was a comfort or music was a place that I could go and you know, whatever, take care of myself. But, um, I, I never really dealt with a lot of this stuff until, uh, until around 2014, 2015, I started, you know, just dealing with it. And then, uh, around that time, well, in 2017, both of Diane's parents died, her dad, her father died, and then right away her mother died. And, um, uh, her mom had become like a, kind of like a second mom or a, more of a mom to, than my own mother. Right, right. So uh, at that point, I just, and also the state of the world with the election and just sort of losing faith in people, I, I, I just kind of bottomed out. I was like, I don't know what the point of any of this is, and I don't want, I don't want to do this anymore, I don't think. I just needed to clear my head. So I canceled, I played out whatever few gigs I had remaining and then told everyone I'm just not going to play any shows and I'm just going to see what it feels like to not play, to not write. I still was teaching my classes. So I was still, I still had hands on the guitar, but that was all teaching. It wasn't trying to make up new things. Right. Um, and it actually was really helpful. It, it it sort of made me realize how much I want, I crave, you know, because I would start to feel like, oh, well, maybe I feel like writing a song. That's interesting, or maybe I feel like I wish I was playing a show. Whereas before it, it became an obligation, you know. Ah, uh, yeah.
1: Oh, that makes sense.
0: And then I, uh, Richard Thompson does this yearly, week long camp in the Catskills where he. He talks about guitar and songwriting, and uh, I thought, well, that seems cool. That seems like something that could be re-inspiring. Okay. And it just so happened that, so the summer of 2018, that Patty Griffin was the special guest songwriting teacher. Oh, cool. And, um, yeah, I'm a huge fan of hers. I'm a huge fan of Richard Thompson, but he almost seems un- untouchable because... <laughs> You know, it's just like, like, I, I could never do that. <laughs> he's like his guitar, it's just, he's just like, he's like an alien or something. Yeah, no kidding. Right? Yeah, like, I couldn't do that. But Patty Griffin seems more possible, even, I mean, she has an incredible, angelic, expressive voice, but the, it just, it seems more like, oh, I, I understand that, yeah. how I could do this. So I went to that thing, and it was great it was great to just sit there with both those people and sort of soak up what they had to say and had to have them both talk about that. It's really hard, (laughs) you know, it was helpful like these people you admire and just talk about how much work it is, but that it's worth it. And they, you know, so I came home from that and I just said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to jump back in. I started writing a lot. And uh, I started recording. I said I'm going to make a new solo record, and uh, yeah, it just went went all in. So I got back from that, I guess, late summer 2018, and um, just wrote and recorded like 25 songs or more. Wow! And that's what this new record is. I don't know if it's the best of that stuff, but it's the it's it's the single. It's the best single LP of that stuff. Okay okay right and, and I will at some point issue the other stuff as well but um, this is the sort of like it felt like it worked as a as a statement or a, a piece
1: did the Richard Thompson week did that change how you approached writing your music or was it just a reinvigoration and, and you kind of went back to the way you were doing it before
0: it made me well, a little bit, yes. And a little bit, but more, more because of a couple of things Patty Griffin said, which was to write the things that you are afraid to write. Oh. <laughs> Just go ahead and, you know, that uh, one thing she said, which I thought was really helpful, is that she's like, I write these songs for myself and it's nice that other people like them. It's great. You know, it's given me a career right. and... And all this and I, and and the ability to keep doing it and tour the world. But the truth is I write these songs for myself. Okay. And I thought well, that's really helpful for someone to actually say that, and someone that I admire to say that. And then and then she said, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because I have high standards. <laughs> so I, I think it did change the way that I write. Like I was thinking, okay, well, I'm just gonna I wanna write this song as if I was the audience and make it as good as it can possibly be if I were the the target audience, basically.
1: Okay. Yeah. Any of these songs that you wrote after you came back, did any of them find them, their way on to the, uh, the second funeral bonsai wedding album, or was that oh. all different?
0: One of them, there's one
1: called however long it takes. Oh, I love that. I, oh, thanks. I love that on actually both versions. I was going to ask, And we can revisit it because I wanted to ask uh, why you, you ended up recording it on both albums.
0: The second funeral bonsai reading record almost was an accident it was not an accident but it happened very quickly because i did a gig with um and this is before huh it was one of the i can't remember when that was sorry <laughs> it was after i don't remember when that was but we did it must have been after so maybe it was one of the first things i did when i came back i did a residency at the Hideout here where i did a series of shows and one of them was Funeral Bonsai Wedding with the String Quartet. Like I had known the women in that string, I'd known Melissa Bach from the Quartet Parapluie for, for years and admired what she did. And I'd seen her playing with my friend Edward Birch. Okay. And uh, I just asked her, you know, would you do this gig? And she was like, yeah, that'd be great. So, um, and then I asked Jason Redkey, the bass player in Funeral Bonsai Wedding to do the string arrangements not knowing what he would come up with oh wow cuz he's a he's a free jazz guy like in his heart of hearts he is a he's the music he makes is very out oh, so good. i thought it might be really crazy but it was for one show it wasn't going to be like a record but the arrangements that he came back with were astounding and even the string like the ladies in the string quartet were like we play a lot of arrangements. These are really, really good. Oh, cool! And so from that, I was like, okay, let's make a record of this. And I think maybe this was the fall of 2018, and then the record was made the
1: next spring. Yeah. So. Okay. Yeah, because it came. Out, it was released in 2020. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. So it was. Re- it was recorded. A year prior, I think. It was okay. recorded in 2019, mid-2019.
1: So what is a funeral bonsai wedding?
0: So that was um, when I used, to, I used to ride the bus to, to the Jazz Record Mart, and it would pass a, a florist who had three big windows in front, and each window had a word painted, and one was <laughs> funeral, one was bonsai, and one was wedding. <laughs> And it just it always looked like
1: a thing to me, Funeral Bonsai Wedding. That is great. Yeah. I love I, see, I love stories like that. <laughs> Things just fall into place. It's very simple, but it just fell into place. Yeah.
0: It always just read, yeah, I would pass it every time. I'd go like, Oh, there's funeral bonsai wedding. Like I didn't even know what the name of the florist was. It seemed like that was the name of the florist. Where
1: you where did you get these this beautiful arrangement? Oh, the funeral bonsai wedding. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, I know them. They're great. And I, I saw that you had gotten an award that you didn't even realize at the time to, um, to help complete the new album, uh, the um, Esteemed Artist Award. That was a total yeah, surprise I, to you.
0: The Chicago D-Case, boy, they're going to be upset. I don't know what D-Case must mean. The Department of Special Events. I don't know what it stands for they're <laughs> totally upset with me. It's... <laughs> The city of Chicago is very good at supporting art, the arts, um, and they, this was a new thing. They invented the esteemed artist with the new mayor, uh, Lori Lightfoot, came in, and they've even accelerated it since, like for 2021, twenty one, they're giving even bigger awards, which is, it's amazing. It's amazing, especially right now when the arts are, in danger in so many places that Chicago's really. So, um, I had applied for a D case, they do these small grants, like small project grants. So my name was in the system, but it was for like, I was asking for like $1,500 or something to, to finish it, to finish the project. Right. So I got the call, I got the call right as the pandemic was right as shut down, like wow. things like routed that same week. Oh, so it was wow. Like, the world is shutting down, but congratulations, you just got $10,000 to use to, to, you know, further your arts. Wow. Artists. And I was one of,
1: I think, 10 people in Chicago. That's yeah. fantastic. It's the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we don't want to get them upset. So. No. That helped with the album. And the album is called At the Bottom of a Canyon in the Branches of a Tree. How did you come up with that? Because there's got to be something behind something that specific. Well,
0: it's a, it's a line from a song and I always like that line. I always sort of like, once I, I don't, I don't name the record until I've gotten all the songs laid out. And then I start going through them line by line to find a line that seems to suit the record. Okay. So that one, that one jumped out because it feels, it feels really good. So, and it's, a when I, the first place we lived in San Diego when I was a little kid was, um, overlooking, uh, San Clemente Canyon. And, um, I just have a memory of going down into the Canyon for like a family photo shoot And so we were—we actually were perched up in the branches of a tree with this professional photographer. And it just seemed, you know, because things were so shitty with my family that, like, the idea of getting a professional photographer to take pictures of us, even as a little kid, just seemed ridiculous
1: to me. Oh, wow. (laughs) So that's where that line comes from. Okay. Is there any type of uh, theme that ties the whole album together?
0: Well, I don't know. I guess maybe I'll leave it up to other people to decide that. For
1: me, it was, it's the
0: body of work that came out of a lot of loss, like Diane's parents, the Christiansons passing away, a lot of changes in the world, and then finally, finally dealing with the stuff from my own family. So... Uh, you know, it's a lot of soul searching and and coming to terms with loss. But then also, like you said, that however long it takes song is is kind of a thesis statement for for both of the records. Really, I mean, it's about um, trying to take takes the sorrow and loss, but still approach the world with with a loving attitude and trying to, you know, be a good person. Yeah,
1: that's where I'm at. Is <laughs> Is this a true solo album? Are you playing everything on it, or do you have other people playing throughout the album?
0: I'm playing like 95%. Wow. My my friend uh, Alton Smith is playing piano on two songs, and uh, Diane sings on one song, and I got a friend of mine that's a
1: master banjo player to play banjo on one song. Oh, that's awesome, because one of the reasons I wanted to know is because the title track, At the Bottom of a Canyon in the Branches of a Tree, is the guitar and it is brilliant. I love that tone. tone especially um, the, on the solo it's just amazing are you using uh vintage instruments to get that kind of sound or uh, i have
0: you- a well i have a i have a casino it's a like a 67 but it's a reissue it's so it's you know it's not the uh, the actual authentic thing but it's 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 pretty darn close and it's got the p90s and okay yeah that might have come i mean I spent a lot of time listening to Richard Thompson and definitely, I mean, he doesn't have that super saturated tone, but the way that he uses dissonance mm-hmm. might've had something to do with that, you know, Yeah. and double stops and that sort of dissonance and the, that would have had something. But I mean, I think the, the Neil Young uh, influence is pretty obvious on that one. And I, yeah. I, I will gladly raise my hand as a devotee <laughs> of the Neil Young guitar style. I, <laughs> i could i just love it
1: oh and i do too and it doesn't matter whether it's him whether it's the uh, crazy horse stray gators uh promise of the yeah. real i don't care who he's playing with neil sounds like neil and he sounds amazing yeah uh,
0: agreed 100 percent. he's after you know when all is said and done he's probably my favorite just across the board like songwriter singer guitar player
1: oh gosh yeah he's He's amazing. In fact, uh like i mentioned earlier in this that I'm on a podcast network. There's one if you like funny humorous podcasts and you don't mind some crude language jokes, there's a great podcast on the network called Long May You Young. And they just yeah. they go through every single Neil Young album chronologically. Oh it's hilarious. If oh, and, okay. you gotta have a good sense of humor and you don't mind them you know, some some language and, and some pretty oh, that doesn't bother me. As long as they're, jokes as long as they're not slagging him no 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 yeah, I'll, I'll tell you one of the funniest things that they do is um they they do a few interviews they don't do a whole lot but they do yeah. a few and they interview danny korchmar oh wow and oh, uh wow. They, the one guy started off by saying look he said i don't i just want to let you know where we're coming from in this he goes landing on water the album that you produce with Neil Young he's like I don't like it I think it's possibly the worst Neil Young album ever made and Court obviously got a little ticked off at it and that set the tone for the whole interview oh wow okay I and totally want to send. oh it was hilarious so it's wow. uh, it's yeah, it's called long may you young and it's uh, it's <laughs> hilarious They're... anyway so we were talking about your tone and <laughs> i gotta i gotta jog my memory back to where we were here because uh, i'm looking at my notes and it's not helping much um so i oh and the, on the album, uh, I, I really like the variety of uh sound you get the genres and and, and and different really different moods of the album like 22 rubber bands is great and i, I love beautiful mathematics I've been tripped and my heart's been made sick by someone who shines
0: on the surface When will I learn to trust my own skin when it tells me I must keep my
1: But I think my favorite track is "I Will Never Stop Being Sorry." Oh wow! I that song really, really touches me. I mean, I can really feel uh-huh. that song, and uh-huh. it is it really it's it's one of the I I'm, I haven't played this for my wife yet, but I I know she's going to love this whole album. So that and that oh. song in particular is going to choke her up. So
0: that song was written at.
1: The songwriting thing
0: in the Catskills wow. to Patty Griffin gave us an assignment. And I hope this doesn't, I don't think it'll wreck the song because the assignment was listen to um, I Put a Spell on You by Screaming Jay Hawkins. Oh, I love that. And write a song. So I took the feel, that,
1: dong, 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 you
0: know, that minor 12-8 feel. Right. And that's, that's where that came from
1: that oh man that's no that that doesn't ruin the song at all for me Okay, (laughs) I, I love that song
0: Forgiveness is a holy place But I am locked in time and in space You lay beside me breathing slow With love in your heart I know I know But who are these ghosts who plot and who plan Stomp around the room With their
1: sacks full of sand The album is coming out at, in July. Yeah, July 16. 16, okay. Where can people find it? Uh, how can they order it? The best
0: place to order it would be Bandcamp. It would be my Bandcamp, uh, Steve Dawson, on, on Bandcamp. It'll be available everywhere, though. They have worldwide distribution, so it'll be available in your local record store it should be. Cool. Or it's certainly
1: order, orderable and then streaming everywhere. And it's coming out through yeah. Pravda, is that yeah. right? Yeah, Pravda Records, yeah. Okay, uh, the um, the artwork, is that, now you said Diane does visual stuff, is it? Yeah, is,
0: that's, Diane's, that's Diane's work, yeah.
1: Oh, that is so good, I really like the artwork.
0: And she did, we have one, there's two singles out, the, the 22 Rubber Bands is out as a single, and she did, um, if you look that up on YouTube, she did the animation for it. Oh, okay. so that's, if you look at yeah, it's it's very cool. This kind
1: of surreal, beautiful uh, animation. That oh, it's, and, and that I love. I, I love visual arts. So anything that is really good quality like that catches my eye, and I, I love it. Is there a, a social media presence that people can follow you and, and get news?
0: Yeah, um, I'm on Instagram, and on Instagram, I guess I dropped one letter in my first name and last name so it's stev dosso <laughs> s-t-e-v-d-a-w-s-o okay. on instagram and then on facebook it's just steve dawson
1: music okay excellent well thank you so much yeah. I mean, this has been a lot of fun and uh it i've I really enjoyed going back and listening to the music uh, i mean i'm a recent follower of you and and i really enjoyed going back and listening to the back catalog but the new album really really shines to me
0: i really appreciate that Thanks. Alex